Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. She's the best-selling author of popular fiction titles showcasing the Australian landscape, along with the challenges faced by rural and remote communities. A rural midwife for over 30 years herself and a passionate advocate and educator for her profession, Fiona MacArthur has penned 45 novels and sold millions of books, the latest of which is The Desert Midwife, published by Penguin Random House. Welcome to Talking Aussie Books, Fiona. Good morning, Claudine. Wow, more than 30 years as a rural midwife. You would have faced some interesting medical and social situations in that time. Was there (laughs) one particular moment in your career that you could say was the precipitating factor in terms of your writing? Um, You know what? I think it was more along the lines of providing service um, in a setting that was a little bit um, conservative. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of where I started writing. So the first book I ever sold was one about sort of this really alternate midwife and this conservative doctor. Mm. <laughs> so I and, and the last one I wrote as I left after the 33 years was about waterbirth. So it was all these social things that I wanted to help the women um, be able to have the same sort of options that women in the city have. The Desert Midwife, um, as I said just before we started recording it, embarrassingly was the first of your novels I've read and I was completely enthralled by Ava's story. Um, it reminded me of that Australian TV series, The Flying Doctors, yeah. in the mid to late 80s and 90s. Um, and it definitely gave me a strong sense of the kind of courage and stoicism living in the outback entails. Before we go any further in terms of talking about The Desert Midwife, can you give my listeners a rundown about the book? The book. Okay, so it started, I wrote a non-fiction book called Aussie Midwives. Um, Aussie Midwives was 19 Australian midwives stories, real names, real people. Um, and it was a little bit of a book of the heart. And one of the midwives that I interviewed for Aussie Midwives was a woman who worked um, between Alice Springs and Catherine. And that was her Monday to Friday job. So she left Alice on a Monday and she came back on a Friday and she just drove and she visited communities and she visited stations. And it was just that concept I felt was really heroic. Um, And it was also like she got to meet these women, some of these really isolated young women who had to leave their families, get on a bus and come in to have a baby. She'd meet them again in Alice if that was her on week for birthing. So it was just like, oh, wow, that's a really good platform for this next book. And then I thought about what sort of needs does that woman have for herself to carry on and do all these things and what's her background and she'd have this really good support network of family, I would assume. So this was my building up of the family. Um, and then I'd always had this had this story that I wanted to write um, about a really fast relationship because I'm not you haven't read any of my other books but I'm actually a sweet writer so, <laughs> so I'm always closing the bedroom door so it was it was quite challenging for me to have them have this intense relationship in a week and then him forget hmm. so it was just yeah it was a really great melding of of lots of fun ideas so yeah I'm really really happy with very proud of it love all the um, Indigenous content. It's all been cleared and got to speak to some amazing people and midwives who'd worked out there. And, yeah, so it was just a collection of all the things that I want to write about that I love to write about. 
indeed. Now, Ava was a delightful character and I, and I loved that despite still grieving her own loss, she brings such compassion and passion to her role as a midwife. It's not just a job for her. Um, no. So I wanted to ask you, in your experience, do you think this is crucial to longevity in this profession or indeed any work in rural and, and remote communities? Yeah, well, even and in the city as well. Um, any midwife um, needs to really have that empathy, that caring, that mothering towards the person they're looking after. Um, and that gives you joy tenfold, whether it's a, a really straightforward birth, which are just like the icing on the cake, or a really difficult long labour that, you know, you sort of feel like, oh, can I have done anything different? And the woman's looking at you thinking, thank God you stayed with me, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> so midwifery itself requires... Um, that connection and and to stay connected with a woman for the duration of the labour at least, you know. So, yeah, I I think rural and remote women, yes, they don't have the the coming home and having someone visit like people do in the city. Once you leave the hospital, you tend to be that's it. So there needs to be a really good connection there too. Yeah, it's such a relationship of trust, isn't it? Oh, it is. It is. Yeah. And people that you might not remember their names, which is terrible, but you do remember their faces and you do remember that you shared something pretty darn incredible. Um, and I just, yeah, I feel blessed every day for the job that I was able to do and, and happy and sad outcomes. You know, you are honoured. I'm, I'm an honoured to be there. It's just a wonderful profession. Indeed. Now, there's a definite city versus outback divide in this book. <laughs> yeah. Ava and her family come from the land and they can't fathom life in the city. And with all the hardships and challenges rural and remote living poses, what is it do you think draws people to this kind of lifestyle? Oh, family. I just think it's I think it's family or loved ones or um you have to have that network and then of course the love of the land and the challenge and the and the little winds and the standing out there and just looking at the sky and just looking at the horizon that's so far away the color of the rocks i mean i visited somebody in um in broken hill and we went up at sunrise onto the top of a ridge and you know it was desolate but it was glorious and there was all these crystallized rocks poking out like a like a dinosaur's back along the top of these ridges. And, I mean, I don't know what the sheep ate, <laughs> but I was absolutely <laughs> wrapped by how gorgeous it all was. So, yeah, I think, you know, deep love the land, good, strong family, um, yeah, and just, just meeting challenges and being resourceful. Yeah. I wanted to delve into some of the themes of this novel. You touch on some very topical issues, not the least of which is drought and its effects on the mental health of those who live off the land. I'm guessing that in your line of work this is something you would have seen a great deal of. I haven't seen a great deal of it. I've read a lot about it. Um, it was a, a watershed for me when I did go to Broken Hill and talk to um, the woman out there at Broken Hill on Mount Gibbs Station and just watching her feeds on Facebook, you know, and a couple of years ago when they got the rain, seeing her standing under a pipe going into the dam just with this look of joy on her face and then, you know, two years later seeing him round up the last of the sheep and pop them on the... You know, and it was just, yeah, that's that's a big, amazing watershed for me. Um, where I live is like it's two hundred acres. It's it's near the <laughs> near the ocean. Um, you know, we have swamp, and it goes under. It floods so much that you can paddle your kayaks over the fences. You know, that keep the cows in. <laughs> and the rest of the time, it's you know brown dry. But it's still a place that always gets a little bit of rain. So even though I'm on tank water, I don't have that fear or or direness that they have in the outback but I admire them so much yeah 
The statistics on suicide rates in Australia's farming community are horrific, um, yep. with, with men most at risk. Um, not everyone is as lucky as Ava's brother, Jock. Not only is economic malaise a factor in depression, but loneliness of life out on a farm. What do you think can be done to help turn the tide on these statistics? I'm loving um, reading about these guys that have actually felt that way and come out of it from Outback, you know. There was a really beautiful article um, two days ago about someone, well, it was tragic but beautiful, someone selling their station after all these years and, again, it was the Broken Hill area, but about meeting somebody who'd been in the same spot and saying, hey, look, you know, you can't do more than what your mother nature lets you do but your family and you are really important and and just not being alone I think these guys just need to know they're not alone and that people really do care and it's not their fault nature is nature that scene in the book and I don't obviously don't want to give away any spoilers um for those who haven't read it but there is a scene in the book that you know is quite heart-wrenching and I wondered how did you get into that headspace to write that scene did you you know did you speak to people who'd um, obviously been touched by no no um and and I could have because my husband's a, was a paramedic for 30 years um but I certainly didn't want to bring anything up to him mm, yes yeah. <laughs> um yeah so no but then I get into the headspace of all my characters so you know I'm I'm Ava or I'm Zach or or I'm Hannah mm. um or I'm you know Jock it, it's just I really see it I they talk to me um, and that's the joy of writing. It doesn't happen all the time. A lot of the time it's bum on seat and just pushing forward. Mm. But then those moments happen that just blow you away and you're like, oh, my goodness, best job in the world, love it. Um, you know, what happened to that three hours? It's just gone. Yeah. So, yeah, no, just losing yourself in the character and, and letting the letting the characters do the journey. Look, I think your novel does a brilliant job of show, showing just how devastating suicide can be, particularly the impact mm-hmm. on other family members and with the characters that you've portrayed in this book. There's a delicate balance um, between yes. all the characters, that sort of interdep- interdependency of relationship between them and they're all, you know, and that love and that bond. Um, it was It was a remarkable read in that respect and I really loved it. Thank you. So Ava's work with the Anangu people and her understanding of their connection with the land is heartwarming to say the least. Can you describe what experience or research you did to draw on for this aspect of your story? Yeah, so um, I've been out to Uluru um, several times and one time I went out just to do more of a meditational sort of trip. Um, I used to work for a, uh, a company that was doing volunteer teaching for midwives and doctors remotely so one of the times we went to Alice Springs so that was the first time I went I went with one of my with my middle child (laughs) it was a diesel mechanic luckily because we got a flat tire on the way out the back of Kings Canyon Um, so it was a long way from Alice to Uluru loved it just loved it Um, went back later with my husband again um, and yeah so there was that there and that was a lot of the descriptions because I really just, yeah, they just remained so magical in my mind. Um, lots of reading, also some discussions. There's a there's a group called the Ara Iri Tidja, which is a digital um, online. Um, it's it's for the language. So there was some ladies that I spoke to there because myself and my publisher, of course, were very concerned that we kept everything sensitive and and that the storytelling was um, believable and that it was, you know, correct and respectful. So I'm really, really proud of that, that we had this communication with all these people. And, um, and I've, I've been, you know, 
birthing with Indigenous women for a long time because I live in Kempsey and we have a lovely Indigenous um, group of people here and these women, they're just amazing. Their family is so strong, you know. So I wanted to portray that as well. Obviously, as you've said, and you you, un, you understood that you know, cultural sensitivity was really important, particularly mm. when you're talking about the Indigenous community. But I loved um, that I could learn about their beliefs and practices um, as a feature of this book. I really, really enjoyed learning about them, particularly through the young pregnant Indigenous girl, Jessamine. Yes. Um, yes. And I wondered, was it a baptism of fire for you in terms of learning the ways of the Anangu people or whatever Indigenous community you happen to be working with um, in, in your role as a midwife? Or did you have to have someone guide you through all of that? Um, so because it was a part of the community in Kempsey, so 25% of our babies are Indigenous, mm. um, so you get to make friends, you get to re-meet families, you would meet the same auntie with different grandchildren or, or nieces. or So that was sort of, that was just a lovely role, you know, oh, you were here when so-and-so. And so that was a really, really helpful thing, I think, as far as my original um, connection. Um, but with, with Central Australia, that was, yeah, that was just visiting, reading and then connecting by email to people who, could actually say. I will tell you a little funny story though. Um, there was a scene in the book where I had a child hurt hurt himself mm-hmm. with his mother walking along a road. That was originally set in a community oh. and the ladies, the elders came back to me and said, could you please set it out of the community so we don't draw bad um, vibes into the community and another child might hurt themselves. Oh, okay. Fascinating. So wasn't that fascinating? Yeah. And I was like, thank goodness you've told me this because yeah, I don't want you to feel that way. Absolutely. So um, we moved the scene. <laughs> so obviously you you spent time up in Uluru and Yara yeah. in the Red Centre. Yeah. And um, Canyon. And, and, yeah. yeah, I mean, and the sense of place that, that I got from reading the book was incredible. Um, and so, you know, naturally I wanted to start looking up some of those places that you mentioned. Yes. Um, yes. And I'm thinking, yes, I really want to go there. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, and that I and that's my kind of armchair travel. I love doing that and then being inspired to go and visit places that I yep. read about. But in so in so doing at the moment, I was horrified to learn of the stampede of sorts that's currently occurring at, at, at Uluru, um, where people are clamouring for that final opportunity to climb the rock before it closes to the public permanently this mm. coming October. Mm. Um, so I wonder, did you have an opinion on whether people should be able to climb Uluru? I, I read about all that the other day, um, and I actually, if you if you look in the book, you'll actually see where Ava says, you know, I look. Um, I would feel honoured if someone wanted to show me a sacred place but I don't feel the need Mm. to climb because, you know, I don't want to climb um, Notre Dame even when it's burnt. But, you know, I think that that was sort of the way I got my little message across. Yeah. Uh, There was one picture, I think I even saw it on the news, there was literally a conga line of people. Yeah, but I don't see that that's much different to 20 years ago when there was one or two. You know, mm. I, I think that um, times are changing and everybody has to change with the times. Indeed. You know, and, and the real thing was that it does really upset the Indigenous community there if somebody's hurt. Um, you know, that's their sacred place and and it does hurt them when someone gets gets injured or, or is killed and that's, you know, they're pretty amazing the way they've just opened up this area and, and share all these knowledge and amazing stuff that they've got out there it's just yeah it's it's pretty incredible 
Now, I love that Ava came from a line of incredibly strong women and <laughs> that it was her grandmother, Mim, who was instrumental in trying to diversify their income stream on Setabilly by setting up these eco-tourist sheds on the property. So do you think that this is, a, this is key to drought survival for farms across Australia now? Well, I'd actually read about, so all these little things tend to come from <laughs> something that I've read about um, a, a farm state that did all those things and it actually dressed the animals and it, and it you know, did all these experiences that people go through and um, the little the little welded um, mailboxes all came from when I visited um, Kim out at um, Mount Gipps Station at um, Broken Hill and I've put it in two books now because <laughs> I just love this little thing. If you look on my um, Homestead Girls Facebook site, there's a there's a little video of that homestead tiny little homestead with the with the windmill turning around in the wind it's just incredible I love it brilliant brilliant but yes I think that diversity is probably the key yeah now we can't not mention the gorgeous Dr Zach with whom Ava (laughs) Ava falls head over heels in love with he was an interesting character with his own tragic past um Mm. how much of his own healing comes from spending time on Setabilly Station being grounded to the land oh I think the family as well, the warmth of the family is is really important to his healing. Um, and Ava not being demanding, just being the amazing person that she is. Um, and I think just finding himself, yeah. And, I mean, he's an extremely worthy guy. He just, yeah, had an accident and he's had a tough time and it just triggered the wrong things. And, yeah, I think that they'll be very happy together. Indeed, I think they, <laughs> they were lucky to find one another. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, Fiona, you've just retired from your role as a clinical mid- midwifery educator. Do you think you'll ever run out of inspiration for your stories now that you're not in the front line, so to speak? It's really interesting. I don't think so. I've got lots and lots of stories, but I also subscribe and are a member of the Australian Midwifery Association, so the Australian College of Midwives. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have a monthly mag which has amazing stories from on-the-ground midwives, and I think that that's going to be a big resource for me. I know lots of midwives, um, we connect, and, yeah, I think it'll be fine. I think that now I've got time to write more. It's so much easier without juggling all the balls of of work and deadlines and then promotion and then (laughs) all these other things. And, I mean, I'm, I'm emergency nanny as well. You know, I've got nine grandchildren. God love you. So, 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 you know, sometimes we do have emergencies yes. and nanny needs to go and, you know, family is really important. So, yeah, it's it's lovely. I had the best job in the world with midwifery. I've retired now and I've moved on to looking at it from a different angle. Mm. Speaking of juggling, I was fascinated to learn that you raised five children and began writing while you were still relatively young. So how is it that you managed to be so, sorry, when when they were still relatively young, not you, (laughs) how is it that you managed to be so prolific with your writing and work at the same time? Yeah, so basically I'm an early morning writer. Um, So this morning I was up probably quarter to five um, and I'd done my writing by six. Uh, When the kids were little, they didn't get up usually before six. So I used to write between four and six and that actually works for me. It it works really well for me. If I don't write in the mornings, I feel really guilty (laughs) for the rest of the day. (laughs) You may as well get the flipping thing out of the road and then you can get on with your life. Um, of course, you have days where you have big writing days, but most of the time I just plod along on my 500 or so words a day and that'll give me a book a year, a small book a year and, and a rewritten book a year. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it suits me very, very well. Um, yeah, and I would say that to anybody who wants to write, I would say just stop being daunted 
about, you know, how much you're going to write and how will I ever finish a book? Just do your 500 words a day. I found I needed to go from the beginning to the end and then I could fix the beginning. It's it's that whole getting stuck on these three chapters and polishing and polishing and polishing that wastes so much time. I wasted 10 years. Mm-hmm. So my big theme is 500 words a day, every day, till you get to the end and then you get to play with it. Don't play with it before then. <laughs> That's excellent advice and um, I think as I mentioned before we started recording that uh, I have a lot of aspiring um, and emerging writers that listen to this podcast, me included, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm in that category and it's always interesting for me to learn about different ways that, that yeah. authors attack goals. I hear a lot of people who are so daunted by the prospect of finishing. Yeah, and other people reading it but you've yeah. got to finish it before they can read it. Indeed, and you can't fix anything if it's not on the page. That's right, absolutely. You can't fix. You can fix a bad page. You can't fix a blank one. So, Fiona, what's next? Are you working on another novel at the moment? Yes, I'm thirty thousand in. Oh, um, wow! <laughs> it's due in September, or October. It's due in October, um, but I want it finished for September so I can sit for a couple of weeks and, yes. and I can fiddle with it. Um, and it's. A story out back again. So it's a, a young woman who um, returns to a town that wasn't really kind to her in the past. But, yeah, and it's also got a few social issues in it, a little bit on the women's housing, you know, because women are being homeless and stuff like that. And it was just I had all these little minor themes and I keep things keep popping into me. You keep running across an article in Women's Weekly. It's like, oh, my goodness, there's a whole article on it. And then you read something else and it's like, oh, my goodness, that was what I was. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's just go with the flow, you know, let it happen. And um, I'll just, just go forward. I love it. I actually go away, though. I go away three weeks a year for one week and just stay by myself and write. And that's always a really nice time. Oh, gosh, I'd love to do that. I know. I know. <laughs> So good. Just escape the world and just sit yes. with your computer and write. So sounds, nice. sounds idyllic. Yes. So, Fiona, are you touring for the Desert Midwife? Um, I'm, look, I've done some bits and pieces. Um, <laughs> I'm going to, because I'm in halfway between Sydney and Brisbane, I can't really do the cities um, easily. So I'm doing, I told my publicist I would go two to two and a half hours around from where I was. So I'm doing Tari and Armadale and um, Coffs Harbour and Grafton. And then I've been doing some travelling with Jay Ford. Um, we went up to Winton to the Outback Writers Festival oh, at okay. Winton, which was a 4,600-kilometre trek Gosh. <laughs> in the car, which was absolutely fun. My husband loved it. Um, so we've done a couple of sort of things like that. But Jay and I are going up to Brisbane. We've got three events up at Gatton and Laidley and um, Runaway Bay. And then we're flying to Melbourne for our conference, for the Romance Writers of Australia conference. Oh, so, I'll see you there. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Please How come exciting. Up yeah, yeah. No, I, I look, I'm actually, can I say, the only person in Australia who's been to every single conference. <laughs> I'm sure I'm, that's not true. It's actually true. Oh, no. um, there was two of us and one lady went away last year. <laughs> um, but you have to pull kudos to my husband because I wasn't published for the first 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> and I did have all these little kids and I used to buzz off. So keep going to conference, that's all I can say. <laughs> well, this will be my first and I'm terribly oh, excited about going. Excellent. <laughs> my husband actually found the first one in the Sydney Morning Herald and he said, you know, you'd probably really like this. You've always said you wanted to write a Mills and Boone. And um, I had 
probably only had four kids then. I didn't have the five. And none of them were at school. And so mum had to come with me and she went to her sister's at the Central Coast and I went off down to Sydney. And um, it was just incredible to meet these people who were so generous, just so open and 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 inspiring but really excited for us for people who wanted to do it um so it was yeah so I went the next year as well and then I actually ended up going every year so my family know that in August mum's away at least for a week (laughs) it used to be a day then it was two and now it's five so yeah yeah it's it's a fun thing and eventually you get to go to RW America just for the the wow factor of instead of you know 400 people there's two and a half thousand oh my lord yeah. and that's that's pretty crazy and all my friends are just flying off now to go to that for next week so um and I'm going off to New Zealand to the Ramat Rise of New Zealand conference because they actually finaled me in the Koru which is really exciting oh that's very exciting yeah awesome so, yeah so Fiona if listeners wanted to connect with you how could they do that so fionamacarthurauthor.com is the webpage and it's got a connection page um Fiona MacArthur author on Facebook um fee catches baby on twitter (laughs) i don't know whether i have to change that you know now that i don't catch babies anymore (laughs) but you know i do on in my book so i think that counts i think i can stay fee catches baby at twitter indeed twitter (laughs) and the same thing for instagram fiona MacArthur author so yeah i'm out there that's brilliant (laughs) fiona i wanted to thank you so much for joining me on talking aussie books today it was an absolute pleasure to chat to you yeah you too claudine Now, listeners, a copy of this book is up for grabs courtesy of Penguin Random House. Do yourself a favour and don't pass up the chance to get your hands on this uplifting and heartwarming novel. If you want to be in the draw to win, you know what to do. Head over to my Instagram or Facebook account and follow the prompts to win. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.